everybody. <laughs> I feel like I have no choice but to start this week by saying thank you. There are a couple extra letters in front of my name, as you might have noticed. Last Sunday, this congregation ordained me to the ministry, a process that started about six years ago for me. So I have to say thank you. (laughs) I think it says something really beautiful about how we think of authority in our spiritual tradition. The, The power to ordain me was not coming from some bishop somewhere, some, you know, guy at headquarters with a funny hat who shows up and waves a magic wand and makes me into a minister. What ordained me last Sunday was that all of you recognized that in me, that you stood and said that you see me as a minister, as your minister. So I really couldn't do this without you. (laughs) Thank you. You have given me one of the greatest gifts of my entire life. Good work. (laughs) And I have... One more story, then I promise I'm going to stop talking about my ordination. Um, One more true story from last week. After the ceremony was over and then the reception, which was fantastic, by the way. Thank you all for those of you who baked or helped clean or set up or make decorations. And then after the reception, all the clergy went out to dinner. And then at about 10.30 at night, I finally got home back to my apartment after a very, very long day. And I was very, 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 very tired. But I had two friends staying with me. My friend Elizabeth, the Reverend Elizabeth Wynn, who did the beautiful laying on of hands prayer towards the end of my ceremony, and her partner Christy. And since they were crashing at my apartment, they helped me carry from my car all of my gifts and cards and wonderful presents, none of which were expected or necessary, but which I was incredibly grateful for from all of you and from my friends and family. They helped me carry these things back to my car. I took a picture of um, the damage here on my coffee table. This was after I'd opened everything. But they said, you can't go to sleep yet. We want to see all of these different presents that you got. So you have to sit here and open them. And I was like, guys, I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> but they made me sit down. And I was sitting there around in my couch, surrounded by these piles and piles of gifts. And in my kind of sleepy state, I said, you guys, it's like Christmas morning in here, but for God. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> Christmas, Christmas is also for God. That's the, that's the whole idea. So maybe check the uh, Divinity School credentials of the next person you ordain before you (laughs) ordain them. So the message series that I'm beginning this week that Reverend Ken and I will be preaching for the next six Sundays leading up to the Sunday before Christmas, actually, is called Rediscovering Grace. It's about rediscovering all of the gifts that are already here all of the things in our lives that we don't have to earn, that we don't have to work for, but that we can just see and rest in. Now, preaching about grace is complicated. 
I was a little stressed out about this, how to introduce this topic, because I can't make anyone feel grace. I can't make you feel gratitude for the gifts in your lives. If I tried, it would probably come out something like this, right? Uh, I don't know if any of you had the kind of parents I, I did sometimes, you know, who would say, you will take that and you will like it, right? You will take what you get and you will be grateful for it. Okay, that that made me feel something. I'm not sure it was gratitude, even though that was what you were trying to get me to say. And what made it more complicated was that I didn't really grow up thinking about grace at all. It wasn't really a relevant topic in my life. I didn't grow up religious. I didn't grow up hearing that word very much. It was a word that kind of occupied the same space in my brain as a concept like torque or... uh, or an earned run average in baseball, which was actually an example I had to ask Reverend Ken for. That's how little space it took up in my brain as I was growing up. You know, things that I can look up in the dictionary, right? Things that I can understand intellectually, but they're not important in my life. They don't really matter to me. My only knowledge of grace was really the song that we sang just before this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, ooh, like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That was my idea of what grace was. And because I didn't grow up religious and I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, I had a very particular and um, inaccurate idea, a narrow idea of what being a religious person meant. And what it meant to be someone who sang that song with feeling, right? What it meant to be someone for whom grace was important, for whom grace saved them. I only really saw the kind of Pat Robertsons and the religious conservatives of the world. And the lyrics of that song gave me this particular idea about what a spiritual person or what a religious person was. I had this idea that a person who needed grace must be kind of weak, very vulnerable, not in a good way, I thought. They didn't really have a a very high opinion of themselves either. Had some low self-esteem issues, I thought, calling themselves a wretch. So I really didn't think grace applied to me. I didn't think it was for me. There's a Lutheran pastor named Nadia Boltz Weber, who some of you may have heard of. She's not the typical image you might bring up in your mind of what a Lutheran pastor looks like. She's really tall, short hair. I think she does CrossFit. She's covered in tattoos. She, um, she's very open about her recovery. She curses a lot in her books. And in her latest book, she tells a story about what it was like for her to grow up very different than I did. She grew up in a very religious community. In fact, a much more conservative Christian denomination than Lutheranism. And so she heard a lot about grace growing up. She tells a story of being at a youth retreat one Saturday morning and hearing the youth pastor talk to them about this gift, this wonderful, unearned gift of grace and love. All of these good things in our lives that are given to us by a God who loves us so much that he sent his son, right, to die for us and that that grace was what saved us. That grace was what was more powerful than all the evil and death in the world. She said, oh, okay, I can get behind this. This sounds like a good thing. 
But then she said his main point seemed to be that God was up there somewhere waiting to see how grateful we were. Waiting to see how grateful we were that Jesus had died for us. And if we were really grateful, we would live in a very particular way. We would show our gratitude. We would never do things like use swear words. Uh oh. <laughs> we would never lie about anything. We would never think about sex, certainly not as unmarried teenagers. We would always be cheerful. We would never drink alcohol. And we would certainly never be snarky or rude. Uh oh, she thought. <laughs> The question he kept repeating was, how would you be living if you really believed? Nadia thought that she believed. She thought that God loved her and that she was saved. But suddenly she wasn't so sure anymore. The idea seemed to be that if she really had experienced grace, if she had really discovered this love of God and was worthy of it, that it would show that everybody else would be able to see. This question of who is in and who is out, who is really loved and saved and who's not, is not a new question. How many of us, you, I didn't, how many of you grew up Catholic? Hey. (laughs) So you may remember the words from the catechism about sacraments. Sacraments were supposed to be an outward sign of an inward grace. They were the outward signs, things like baptism, participating in communion, marriage, the ordination of priests. They were the way that you could tell, the outward sign of an inward grace. And so this isn't a new dilemma at all. This anxiety over trying to figure out if we're really loved, if we're really the worthy ones. It's not new, and it's also not one that I think we've really left behind in our world. This is something I see on social media all the time. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) It's an interesting phenomenon that we see this. People who are religious and people who are not really religious using this when they post a picture of something wonderful, usually, in their lives, right? Something beautiful that they're seeing, some great thing that's happened to them. You may have used it. I may have used it in the past. I honestly don't remember. I probably have. And yet, sometimes it can ring a little strange, depending on how people use it. When I was uh, Google image searching for this, one of the other things that came up was a still screenshot from the TV show Parks and Recreation, Anybody watch that show? I've seen that show. So there's a character played by Aziz Ansari called, named Tom Haverford. He's kind of a jerk. And he, uh, he gets into a car accident in one episode, a minor car accident, but he got into the accident because he was using his phone while he was driving. And they pull up the records of what he was doing on his phone before he got into the accident. And it turns out he had been tweeting out four green lights in a row, hashtag blessed. <laughs> So, you know, what does this tag really mean? What do we really take as a sign of divine favor in our lives? Of course, good things happen to us, but 
what does it mean when we only connect that idea of blessing and grace to those good things that show, right? To the four green lights, to the beautiful sunset, to the great success in our job. There's another woman uh, on social media this week who's been in the news named Asina O'Neill. I don't know if you've heard about this story. She was an Instagram model. She's only 19 years old. She's in Australia. This is one of her pictures. She made the news this week because she very publicly quit Instagram. And she deleted most of her pictures, but she left a couple of them up and changed the captions for them. This is one of the ones that she left up on Instagram. I like this caption. I'll read it to you. There is nothing zen about trying to look zen, taking a photo of you trying to be zen to prove your zen on Instagram. (laughs) She has a good point. (laughs) You see, she had so many followers, so many people who were watching her, who were jealous of her life, who would retweet these images and talk about how much they wanted to look like her, to have her life, to be her. But she got really upset when she realized that people didn't know that she was being paid for this. People didn't know that she didn't own any of these things. These were companies that were sending her clothes and products to advertise. She talked about how she had to take 200 pictures of herself just to get her body to look exactly right in those pictures that everybody was jealous of. Now, she's only 19 This may not seem like a revolutionary idea to all of us here if we're in our 30s or 50s or 70s. But she really woke up to this. She really woke up to this idea that people were profiting off of her image because her images that were crafted to look so effortless and beautiful were making people feel really crappy about themselves. Were making people feel like they didn't have a life that was good enough. She just decided she didn't want to do that anymore. She didn't want to be part of the myth that everybody else seems to have it all together, except for me. She didn't want to be part of that idea that everybody else knows what's going on and has it all working out for them, except for me. In her video, she said, basically, you're okay, just how you are. Don't worry about me. You're okay. Now, some of us really don't care what some 19-year-old Instagram model in Australia looks like. Some of us might. But we all have something. Something that keeps us from accepting grace. Something that keeps us from accepting the idea that we preach here, that we believe as universalists, that we are all unconditionally loved. Reverend Ken says, there is a love so special that we don't have to be special to be loved. We all have access to it. There's no asterisk next to our name. There's no footnote that says when we do this or when we become this. We are all already beloved. And it's one thing to believe that intellectually, to say that it's a value that I hold, right? And it is an entirely different thing to trust it. 
in our hearts. I really didn't get grace. Like I said, when I was growing up, I didn't really know what it meant, and I definitely didn't trust it. I will share with you today that the thing that has always kept me from accepting that idea was very specific to my life. We all have our own things, our own stories. I didn't really believe that I was beloved unless love was showing up for me in a very particular way, in the form of a romantic partner, a husband, a boyfriend, a person, a soulmate. I thought that I needed that to really be loved, that that was what would show in the world and prove to everybody that I was actually worthy of love. I think some of us can relate to that. And I think for some of us, we can't relate to that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's professional success that we need. Maybe it's achievement, a level of financial security or providing for our families. Maybe it's having a family, having a child that we need. Maybe it's getting our health back to a place it used to be. Maybe it's having that perfectly clean and beautiful home. And it's not that any of these things are bad things to have or to want or to seek but we have this tendency to attach something much bigger than any of those things to them. We have a tendency to attach to these things that deeper fundamental question of, am I okay? Am I enough? Am I good? Am I doing it right? We believe that if we are okay, it will show. It has to. It has to show or else we doubt and we fear. Sometimes we even wonder if all the other good in our lives is bankrupt because of it. I always believed that I needed a soulmate or a partner to show that I was beloved and lovable. And so I had this moment when I was about 23 years old. I've taken to calling it my sinner's prayer moment. Don't worry, you're still in a Unitarian church, everyone. Um, I don't believe I'm a sinner or totally depraved or anything like that, but it had that quality, if you know what a sinner's prayer moment is, of total surrender and vulnerability. I had just been dumped. wasn't the first time, wasn't the last time. And I'd only been dating the guy that dumped me for like six months. But for some reason, this one hit me hard. Like, crying in bed for multiple days hard. Like, my two best friends from childhood brought me pie and fed it to me 
while I was in bed crying for days. Yeah, this was not my most shining feminist moment. I felt like I had totally failed. I felt like I was not good enough. I felt like a wretch. And for some reason, one night, praying was still pretty new to me at that point, not something I did all the time. But when I was by myself after everybody had left, in tears, I found myself praying this prayer that I have never, ever, ever forgotten. I said, God, please send me a great love. I'm ready. Send me a great love. I'm ready. I gave myself over completely. I gave in to needing that. I gave in to the fact that I couldn't force it to show up the way that I wanted, the way that I expected. I didn't ask for a boyfriend. I didn't ask for a husband. There was a very different quality to that prayer. For the first time, I just asked for love. This message series is called Rediscovering Grace. And I need to confess to you also that for years, I let the grace of that moment get away from me completely. I lost it again. I reattached to that idea because I met someone. A couple months after that night, I met someone new and I decided, not right away, but pretty quickly, that he was the answer to my prayer. Which is just a terribly romantic thing to believe about someone if you're a ministry student. (laughs) I decided that he was that sign. He was my proof. That I had prayed just right, yes, right? That I knew now that I was favored that I knew that it showed that I finally had gotten it. Which made our breakup five years later way harder than it needed to be. And in that time of my life, two years ago, what saved me was my practice, my spiritual practice. Just like the things that we attach to are different, I think the things that save each of us are different. But for me, it was sitting with how I felt. It was paying attention, getting to know myself, becoming kind and friendly with my thoughts, my emotions, all the stories that I told myself. That was what allowed me to shift from the idea and the belief that I was loved into a love that I could trust, a love that I knew, rather than losing myself in those narratives 
that were unconscious to me for so long. I could just wake up to all the ways that love was already around me. All of the amazing, incredible, glorious, God-filled ways that love was already here. Like the day-blind stars in that Wendell Berry poem, Peace of Wild Things. I love that image. The stars are out there. The day-blind stars. We need the night sometimes to remember that, to really see them. The important part of that prayer that I prayed when I was 23 had never been, send me a great love. It was, I'm ready. I hope that we all feel ready when joy comes back or when grace comes back. I hope that all of us remember that we don't need to prove anything to our Instagram followers, to our youth pastors, to some guy with a funny hat up at headquarters. We don't need to prove any of it. All we need to do is trust and receive the gifts that we've already been given. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Holy Presence, God of our hearts, Spirit in all things that knows our deepest yearnings. Thank you for never leaving us. Thank you for knowing that we are worthy even when we don't believe it. Thank you for just being ready and waiting for those moments when we wake up to see what is already here. For these prayers and the prayers that each one of us carries on our hearts this morning, we say amen.